0: We're going to be in Psalm chapter 73. and I know y'all probably just took your seats there, but that's all right. Um, I'm going to invite you to stand as you arrive in Psalm 73 out of reverence for God's word as we read it. Psalm chapter 73. While you're getting there, let me just say it's good to be back with you this morning. Uh, I appreciate, I know I've been kind of in and out the past few weeks. just want to thank you as a church for allowing me and my family to have those breaks uh, to get away for a little bit. I think this will be it for the summer. We won't be, won't be gone anymore on a Sunday. Uh, if you're visiting with us, my name is Pastor Michael. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, lead pastor at Newbury Church. Thankful that you are visiting with us. We're in the middle of the summer of Psalms, uh, just walking through different Psalms. This morning we're going to be in Psalm chapter seventy. So hear, hear the word of the Lord. This is Asaph writing, and he says, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray, for I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. But they are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out of their fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease, and they increase their wealth. Asaph then asks, Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. When I tried to understand all of this, it seemed hopeless until... I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors, like one waking from a dream. Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you, yet... I am always with you, and you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence... Is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. And this morning I want to I think about this idea of don't sell out. Don't sell out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> this morning as we, your people, dive into your word, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that you would speak through me in a way that helps my brothers and sisters fix their eyes on you. God, give me. Physical and spiritual strength this morning to preach your word faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Hmm. Don't, don't sell out. Don't sell out. You know, back in, back in 2003, a kid from Akron, Ohio, joined the NBA. Some of you already know who I'm talking about. You may have heard of him, even if you are not a basketball fan. His name is LeBron James. How many people knew at the very beginning that LeBron James was going to be a great basketball player. And it turns out, he would become the second greatest basketball player to ever play the game. I said what I said, the second greatest player to ever play the game. Don't email me about it. LeBron James is not the greatest player. That's not the point of this illustration. What makes this story so unique, though, is that this kid from Akron, Ohio, ended up playing for the Cleveland Cavaliers in Ohio. So many people in Ohio, they took pride in this, that this kid from Ohio was representing Ohio at the highest level of basketball. And LeBron played from 2003 to 2010 with Cleveland. But during that time, he never won a championship. But then in 2010, something very interesting happened. It's something is known as, to basketball fans, as the decision. You see, LeBron became a free agent. And what that means is that he was free to sign with any NBA team he wanted to, to play with. He could retire if he wanted to. He, he was free to make whatever choice he wanted. And many people wanted him to stay with the Cleveland Cavaliers and finish what he started and win a championship. But LeBron made a decision. In my opinion, LeBron made a decision that would forever put an asterisk next to his greatness status. LeBron decided that he would go play for the Miami Heat, a team that was already stacked with superstars. And what we had in NBA was the the first time we had a big three, three superstars playing on the court at the same time. And and these superstars acted like superstars, and they won back-to-back NBA championships. Many people saw LeBron's decision as a decision to sell out. Why did they think that he was selling out? Well? They claimed that he saw the potential for easy success on a team that was stacked with superstars, and he was willing to go after that easy success and forsake his Ohio roots in the process. Many people, to this day believe that LeBron sold out. Now, if you're a basketball fan like me, you might have different opinions on whether or not he actually, sold out, but the reason I bring that story up is not so that we can debate NBA basketball this morning, we can do that later if you want, but because in a much more consequential way, we as believers will face moments in our life where we will be tempted to sell out, and here's what I mean, specifically, we will be tempted to compromise the foundation and roots of our faith that we have for temporary and ultimately eternally meaningless success, comfort, or prestige in this world. We will be tempted to sell out. Some of us will be tempted to sell out our purity for the relationship that we think will give us pleasure and meaning. Some of us will be tempted to sell out our integrity to get ahead of the competition and get that job promotion that we really want. Some of us will be tempted to sell out our God-giving calling in pursuit of a life that will bring earthly comfort and ease. Some of us will be tempted to sell out our witness in order to fit in with those people that we believe just matter. Some of us will, or maybe we have already sold out the cross for a donkey or an elephant. We will be tempted to sell out. And what I want to say this morning, as plain as I can, is don't sell out. Don't be like Esau and, and sell your birthright for a moment of temporary satisfaction. <clears throat> but here's the good news for us. The good news this morning is that the t- temptation to sell out, it's not a new temptation, And you may be thinking, well, why is that good news for me? Well, it means that there are others who have gone before us, and we can learn from both their success and their failures. You see, the temptation to sell out has existed as long as the faith has existed. People throughout history have been tempted to sell out the foundation of their faith for temporary, easy life pleasures. And what we see in Psalm 73 is a time when Asaph was tempted to sell out. And what Psalm 73 is, is it's, it's Asaph looking back. He's recounting for us a time when he was tempted to abandon the truth he knew because he just saw easier success in the world. A time when he was tempted to pursue earthly gain at the expense of his very soul. He is reflecting back on what that time looked like, how he responded, and the truth that ultimately grounded him in the midst of this real temptation. So we have a lot to, to work through this morning. And what I want to do this morning is, is walk through Asaph's recounting of this time. Uh, and, and the goal is to hopefully to learn some valuable lessons that will encourage us to stand firm. And when tempted, refuse to sell out. And this is an interesting psalm for me. I love Psalm 73. Uh, it, It is one of my favorites in in the Psalms, and part of the reason it's so interesting this morning is is I haven't quite, I know this is going to sound strange, I haven't quite decided how I want to preach it yet. Um, I have my iPad and my written notes, and I have both of them because I I haven't decided exactly how I want to preach it, so I brought them both up here. So I think we're just going to work through it and see what the Lord does, okay? Before we dive into it, let me give you a little bit of background. This Psalm is written by Asaph. Uh, You see Asaph's name a few times in the psalm. There are actually 12 psalms written uh, by him. Asaph lived uh, as a contemporary with King David, so they knew each other. He actually held a position of prominence in the kingdom, and one of his responsibilities was to lead in the singing of praise and worship. We see that in 1 Chronicles 16, verse 7, where it says that on that day, uh, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brother. So in essence, Asaph was, among other things, a worship leader. Some have noted that he was a recorder in the kingdom, which which could be translated as a prosecutor in the kingdom. So not only was he the worship leader, but but Asaph would be the one who would prosecute injustices in the kingdom against the kingdom or against the king himself. And so this psalm is, is written by Asaph, and, and as we mentioned, he's reflecting on a time when he was tempted. He was tempted to sell out. He was tempted to, to abandon God for the things and the ways of this world, but in the end, the amazing thing, the hope that we have is that God held him fast. And so as we work through this psalm, there are five key ideas that I want I want us to focus on. It's basically five ways in which I've broken up this psalm to help us understand and get the gist of what's going on. So here's the first thing I want you to note, the first key idea, and it's the declaration. Look at the declaration there in verse 1. Asaph writes, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. So as Asaph begins this psalm, as he, as he begins to reflect back on this time when he was tempted, he begins with a declaration of truth. And, and, and I want you to, to understand why this declaration of truth is so significant. Because it is this declaration of truth that ultimately sustained him when he was tempted to go astray. And it is this truth that he declares now on the other side of the temptation. This truth that God is Good. God is good. Now, please hear me when I say this. That phrase gets overused and underappreciated by a lot of Christians. We've turned it into sayings, right? Call and responses. God is good. What do you say? All the time. All the time. That's true, amen. amen. I'm glad y'all knew that. But I want you to hear me clearly. Asaph is not merely spouting off some religious talk he's not declaring a spiritual platitude that he learned in the temple that he's supposed to say he's not repeating this righteous blabber in order to make himself look holier asaph is declaring a truth that when it is believed will change the entire structure of your life when we believe that god is good everything changes And that truth, though, that God is good, that Asaph proclaims in the very first verse, it is both historical and experiential. Let, let me explain what I mean. So when Asaph says God is good, he is declaring a historical truth. In other words, Asaph saying, listen, there's a track record to this, that God is good. It is historical Asaph is is remembering what he knows to be true of God. He's remembering that God God was good when he promised Adam and Eve that though you guys messed it up, I'll fix it. God was good to Noah when he said, build an ark because I'm going to destroy the world, but I'm going to save you and your family. He's remembering that God was good to Abraham when he promised that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. He's remembering that God was good to his people when he delivered them from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. He's remembering that God was good to his people when he raised up judges to deliver them from the hand of their oppressors because they continued to rebel. He He is remembering that God was good to his people when he raised up this shepherd boy who would soon become their king, who would send an army running when the Israelites were too scared to face them. We remember that God was good to His people when He promised that though their rebellion continued, there was coming a Savior. And God was good to the world when He showed up and wrapped Himself in flesh, living the perfect life, dying the sacrificial death. And what what Asaph knows is that God has a track record throughout history of being a good, good God. But for Asaph, it's not just historical facts. It's not just historical. It's also experiential. Here's what I mean. You don't have to know Bible history to know that God is good. You don't have to look through the history of this world or the history of Scripture. You can look through your own life because God has been good to you. James 1.17 tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. God shows common grace for both the righteous and the unrighteous. Those who know it and those who don't have still experienced the goodness of God in their life. The fact that you have breath in your lungs this morning is evidence that God is good. The fact that you have food on your table is evidence that God is good. The fact that you have a roof over your head is evidence that God is good. The fact that you have friends and family is evidence that God is good. The fact that you are here this morning, whether you want to be or not, is evidence that God is good to you. But I want you to notice that it goes even further, because look at what he actually says in verse 1. He doesn't just say that God is good. He says God is indeed good to Israel. To the pure in heart. And so what he's getting at is not not merely the general goodness of God. Because we believe in the general goodness of God. We call it common grace, like I just mentioned. God makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Amen? The the wicked of this world, in this world, will still experience the common grace and the goodness of God. But what Asaph is getting at, it's deeper than that. it's, It's more meaningful than that. Because what he's getting at is that there is a unique and supreme good that is experienced by those who belong to God. He is reminding himself of the fact that there is a unique blessing for those who are united to God through faith. Scripture testifies to this, Psalm 5 verse 12. For you, Lord, bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield. Proverbs 3, 33, The Lord's curse is on the household of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. You can go New Testament on it and look at Matthew 5, 6. And Jesus is teaching the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. What Asaph knows, what he believes, is those who are in Christ, those who have placed their faith in the Messiah, for him it would be the coming Messiah. For us it is the Messiah who has come, but those who place their faith in Christ experience the blessing and goodness of, a God, of God in a way that is not experienced by anything or anyone else. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Here's where Asaph would ultimately get all tripped up. The problem comes when we start trying to define what the blessing is rather than letting God define what the blessing is. Now, that's a big theme, but we're going to come back to it in a little bit. I can't, I, can't, I can't shoot off all my fireworks in the intro, right? But remember that, that there is a problem that will come when we start trying to define what God's goodness and blessing is rather than letting God define what goodness and blessing is. But this leads to the second big idea that I want you to see, the second key idea I want you to see this morning, and it's the temptation. So he begins in verse 1 with this declaration, this truth that, that, that will undergird him and that ultimately saw him through. But, but the second thing that I want you to see is the temptation. And we see it in verses 2 through 14. So let's walk through it, right? There in verse 2, we see, we see Asaph acknowledge that he almost loses it. He says, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. And with that that statement, Asaph is communicating that he understands that he is being tempted. But why is Asaph being tempted? Well, Asaph is doing something that we so frequently do. Asaph begins to fix his eyes on things other than God. He begins to dwell on what everyone else around him has. And ultimately, he begins to question whether he is truly blessed at all. Whether God has indeed been good to him, but, but there are three things that he notes, three things that, that Asaph starts to pay attention to that begin to shape how he thinks and ultimately lead him to be tempted. So first, he notices the prosperity of the wicked. Look at verse 3. He says, For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Have you ever seen that? Where it seems like the most cutthroat, the most ruthless, the most sinful are the ones who, who make the most money, who have the nicest toys, biggest houses. Fastest cars. Asaph notices that. He looks around. He says, I, I envied the arrogant because I saw their prosperity. He, he acknowledges they were wicked, but he sees that they're prospering despite their wickedness. Now, we would, we would like to think that it's those who are faithful to God that would be prospering in the world. Don't we? Maybe it's just me. But we know that it's usually, as I mentioned, the most cunning, the most deceitful, the most arrogant people who end up on top, at least on top according to the world standards. But second, not only does he notice the prosperity of the wicked, he notices the ease of the wicked. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, they have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. So what Asaph is picking up on is not only do these wicked people have, ha, seem to have all the worldly possessions in abundance, but Asaph notices that their lives seem to be easy compared to his. There's not much trouble in their life. There's not much struggle in their life. There's not much heartache in their lives. And on the other hand, he, he, he's seeing that those who are faithful seem to be the ones who are in constant struggle. Their lives seem to be the ones that are marked by the greatest difficulty. Matthew Henry notes this same reality in his commentary when he writes that wicked men often spend their lives without much sickness and in them without great pain, while many godly persons scarcely know what health is and die with great suffering. So Asaph is seeing this. But next he notices not only the prosperity of the wicked, not only the ease of the wicked, but he notices the sin of the wicked. He says in verses 6 through 9, therefore pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out with fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. So what he's picking up on is it ain't even like these wicked people are trying to hide their wickedness. Right? So, so what's he getting at? He's saying, that look, you would think that if there's a holy God who loves righteousness and hates wickedness, if he really is in control, if he really is on his throne, you would think that he wouldn't let the wicked just arrogantly parade their wickedness, right? He says they're blatantly and openly rebelling, and yet everything seems to be going right for them. But notice what he says in verse 9. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. They are sinning and sinning openly, and nothing bad befalls them. And so ultimately, what Asaph is beginning to notice is that in this life, it seems easier to be opposed to God than to be obedient to him. Now, let's be honest for a minute. We're family. Have you ever felt that way? Like it, it just seems like it would be easier if we, if we threw out all this God stuff. Y'all ain't saying that. Maybe it's just me and y'all are holier than me. I'm glad I have a church that is that righteous. But for me, I, I've thought that before. I think that frequently because I'll be honest with you. It would be easier for me to agree with the world. It would be easier for, me to, easier for me to agree that all truth is relative, so you do you and I'm going to do me, and we're just going to live life happy and, and not worry about it. It would be easier for me to agree with the world in terms of how they view sexuality and how they view the family. It would be easier for me to make politics my God. It would lead to a whole lot less conflict and a whole lot less struggle. It would be easier to respond to injustice in this world the way that the world responds to injustice. But what I want you to note is that even though Asaph is seeing all these things, up until this point, Asaph's not necessarily in a bad place. And what I mean by that is it's not, it's not sinful to recognize the wickedness of other, others. It's not even a bad thing to notice that in a worldly sense, they, they seem to have more than what we do. They seem to have an abundance compared to believers. But where the great temptation comes for Asaph and for so many of us is where that recognition often leads. Because what it does is it doesn't stop with just a recognition that the world seems to be prospering. Asaph takes it a step further. He does what so many of us do, and it causes him to actually start questioning the goodness of God to his people. See, when this happens, when our observation leads to doubt, we've entered an entirely different arena and our souls are in a very dangerous place. But this is what happens to Asaph. He begins to see what appears to be the prosperity of the wicked and it leads him to question and to focus on what he perceives to be a lack of goodness found in faithfulness. He goes so far in verse 10 as to say this, therefore his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The literal translation of that, a better translation is that therefore his people turn and the waters of abundance are drunk by them. And what Asaph is saying, and and this this is a weighty statement, is that because of the prosperity of the wicked, there's nothing left for the faithful. He says that the waters of abundance are drunk by them or drained out. He is basically saying that God has given all the good things to the wicked and there's nothing left for his people. But then he goes even further in verse 11. He notes that the wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Asaph is revealing that the wicked recognize their prosperity and their wickedness are in essence a challenge to God, and they're saying that God's not going to do anything about it. But what's interesting is now Asaph's done the exact same thing. He's challenged God. He's challenged God's goodness towards his people, and he's challenged the justice and holiness of God. I want to be clear with you. This is the great temptation that we all face. To question whether God is actually good to his people. We question if the wicked will ever really be punished. And in verse 12, we see a summary of the wicked. Asaph says, look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease and they increase their wealth. This is the place where Asaph finds himself. It's a place of questioning and doubt. I mean, let's be honest, it's a place of bitterness. He's looking at the prosperity of the world. He said, God, you've been so good to them that you've forgotten about me. You've left me here. I don't have any of that stuff. I don't have any prosperity. I don't have any wealth. I don't have any ease. I don't have any, any health. I, I, I'm struggling, and you've given all the good things to the wicked. Look at what he says in verse 13 and 14 questions and says, did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. (laughs) Asaph gets the place that we get to with that too, right? The superlatives. All day long I'm afflicted. Every morning. Every morning. Not just some mornings. Not on Tuesday and Thursday. Every morning. I'm punished by God. Asaph's dwelling thick in the temptation. So not only does Asaph question the goodness of the Lord, he questions whether or not he has wasted his time in pursuing righteousness. There's this underlying thought for Asaph that maybe it would just be better to live for the here and now. Because life right now is really tough when you're trying to follow Jesus. Again, have you ever felt that way? Maybe it would just be better to live for the world. Because this whole living for Jesus thing, it's not producing what I thought. I don't know, maybe you haven't been there. Maybe that's not your story. Maybe you're... You're one who believes in the goodness of God, who's never doubted the goodness of God and thinks he's always for you, never against you. But I feel at ease in the fact that I'm in good company because this seems to be a common struggle in scripture. Jeremiah had the exact same struggle in Jeremiah 12:1 through 4. Jeremiah says, you, you will be righteous, Lord, even if I bring a case against you, yet I wish to contend with you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the treacherous live at ease? You planted them and and they have taken root. They have grown and produced fruit. You are ever on their lips, but far from their conscience. As for you, Lord, you know me. You see me. You test whether my heart is with you. Drag the wicked away like sheep to the slaughter and set them apart for the day of killing. How long will the land mourn and the grass be? The grass of every field wither because of the evil of its residents. Animals and birds have been swept away for the people have said he cannot see what our end will be. David in Psalm 37, 7 says, be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. Do not be agitated by the one who prospers in his way, by the person who carries out evil plans. Even David has to remind the people of God and himself. Listen, don't get angry when you see the wicked prospering because they will prosper. Psalm 94, 1 through 3, a psalm not attributed to David or Asaph, but to the choir master. It says, Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine. Rise up, judge the earth, repay the proud for what they deserve. How long will the wicked, how long will the wicked celebrate? So Asaph's being tempted in a way that so many people have been tempted. He's being tempted to believe that God has withheld good from him. But here's the next key idea that I want you to see, and it's a very important key idea. See, we saw the temptation, but now I want you to see a recognition of the temptation. A recognition of the temptation. Look at verses 15 through 17. Asaph said, if I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Look at this. Then I understood their destiny. See, it's in these verses where David recognizes that he's being tempted. But verse 15 is really interesting to me. He says, if I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. You see, Asaph recognizes something that I think a lot of Christians would do well to pay attention to. Asaph recognizes the great temptation that he is facing, but he also recognizes it would be a great hindrance to his brothers and sisters to declare his thoughts to them. He says, by saying, I would have, I would have betrayed the generation of your children, he is in essence revealing it would, it would do no good. It would simply undermine and discourage others' faith. And there is great wisdom in this statement. Uh, Please hear me, there has to be balance, because I stand up here and I tell you that we need one another, we need to confess one sin to one another, we need to help hold one another accountable, we need to encourage one another, we need to be honest about what we are struggling with, but there has to be balance, because if all we ever do is vocalize our discouragement with the Lord, our frustration with serving Him without ever encouraging others, we will be a hindrance to the faith of other people be real transparent with you. This is something that your pastor struggle greatly with. I'm thankful that you call me when you struggle. I'm thankful that you call me when you hurt. But you know when you never call me? When the Lord shows up. Hey, we need those calls too. You, it can be a discouraging thing to only hear the bad stuff going on, only hear the doubt, only hear the sin, only hear the struggle, only hear the pain, and never get to hear God did Something. Asaph picks up on that too. And Asaph has enough wisdom to say, I'm doubting God, I'm questioning God, I'm struggling with God, but I'm not going to say it. Because there's something in him where he knows that it's just not right. So he uses patience. But verse 16 helps us understand his thinking a little bit more. He says, When I tried to understand all of this, it seemed hopeless. And so Asaph was aware of the temptation and the struggle that was going on within his soul, and it was hard for him to wrap his mind around what was going on. And Asaph knew that he wouldn't figure it out on his own. But Asaph also knew that the Lord gives clarity where there is confusion and wisdom when there is no understanding. Consider James 5, or I'm sorry, James 1, verse 5. It says, Now, any of, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives it all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given. To him. So Asaph understands that, man, I don't get this. I don't understand the prosperity of the wicked. I don't understand why they keep thriving and I keep struggling. But Asaph knows where to go to find answers. And look at verse 17. He says, let me jump back to 16. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless. Verse 17, until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. See, here's where the grand shift begins to take place for Asaph. Because up until this point, he has dwelt on the wickedness of others. He's dwelt on the success of others. He's dwelt on the struggle of the righteous. And I want you to notice this. Where Asaph is looking is purely horizontal. He's looking out. He's looking at the world, he's seeing the wicked prospering, he's seeing his brothers and sisters struggling, he's seeing this man living in ease, he's seeing this this brother or sister in in discomfort and pain and dying in sickness, and so he's only looking out. The only thing he has been considering is the world around him, but now as he comes into the presence of God, he begins to dwell on God and something happens. He stops looking out and he begins to look up. And I don't know if this is true in your life, but I've experienced it in mine, that dwelling in the presence of a holy God has a way of altering your thinking. As Asaph dwells in the presence of God, the things that he remembers about God start to come to mind. But not only that, it's in the presence of God where he's able to identify the fact that he's even being tempted. Now please hear me, this is a very important Listen, you will fall to temptation every time if you fail to recognize you're even being tempted. For so many of us, the only reason we know we have been tempted is because we've already given in to that temptation and we're feeling the pain that comes with sin. But when we dwell with God, and I'm not, talking about, I'm not just talking about showing up here on Sundays, Keep doing that, please. But I'm talking about dwelling with God in the, in the little moments throughout your day. When you wake in the morning, when, when, when you're driving in your car, right? When, when you're sitting alone, when you get a chance to rest, when you're at the dinner table, before, before you lay your head on your pillow at night, I'm talking about dwelling with God in every moment, When we spend time with Him like that, when we walk in right fellowship with Him, the Holy Spirit just has this way of clearly showing us the pitfalls that lie ahead. But when we only run to God when it is convenient for us, we will find ourselves in sin faster than we can imagine. You see, the goal is to battle temptation so that we do not sin. Now, I know there are different theological positions about this, but I stand where I stand, and we can debate it later. There is no sin in being tempted. There is sin when you give in to temptation. That's why I said when Asaph was recognizing the wicked, the prosperity of him, he was still all right. He was just observing things. But where he fell was that he didn't realize he was being tempted, and he started to believe wrong things about God. But then he dwells in the sanctuary of God. He stops looking out and begins to look up and things start to make a little bit more sense. But this leads to the next key idea that I want you to see. After the recognition of temptation, there's a battle against temptation. A battle against temptation. It's in verses 18 through 24. We begin to see Asaph fighting back against the temptation to believe that God is not good to those who trust him. And the way he fought, fights back is twofold. First, he fights back by reminding himself of what he knows to be true. Not what he sees, what he knows to be true. Look at verses 18 through 20. He says, indeed, You put them, who's the them, the wicked. You put the wicked in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors like one waking from a dream. Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. And what Asaph is beginning to remember is the fact that temporal things, That the stuff of this world passes away. David said it like this in Psalm 37, verses 1 through 3. Do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong, for they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green plants. Trust in the Lord and do what is good, and dwell in the land and live securely. You see, Asaph is reminded that the ultimate end for those who, the ultimate end. For those who are wicked is destruction. And Asaph begins to remember that the prosperity of this life is not the end. This leads Asaph to remember that, when the wicked, that while the wicked have temporary satisfaction, the righteous one of God has eternal satisfaction. So he begins to fight against this temptation by reminding himself of things he knows to be true. But the second way that he fights against temptation, and often we don't think of this as a way of fighting back, but he fights back by repenting of his sin. Look at verses 21 through 24. He says, when I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you. He says, yet I'm always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me up to glory. I don't want you to miss this because this is extremely important. Asaph recognized his ungodly thoughts. Asaph recognized his sin and he repents of that in verses 21 and 22. And so please hear me that a righteous recognition of sin will always lead a true believer to repent. But but notice what his repentance entailed. Asaph was not satisfied, as so many of us are, with simply recognizing that he had fallen short. Can I tell you something? By, By recognizing that you have sinned, it does not mean that you have repented. It's a part of it, but that's not all that repentance is. You see, repentance is more than just recognizing where you messed up. Repentance is about changing your mind. It's about agreeing with God in the area where you were disagreeing with him. So Asaph was disagreeing with God because God says, I'm good to those who trust me. And Asaph is believing you're not good to those who trust him. And so not only did he recognize his sin, but he changed his thinking to to remind himself to believe that God is good to those who trust him. That's what we see in verses 23 and 24. You see him agreeing with God, yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me up in glory. What Asaph is saying is, indeed, God, you are good to me. Now, you might remember that towards the beginning, right, I was saving my fireworks. I said that the problem comes when we start trying to define what the blessing is. The temptation comes when we start looking for blessings in places where the blessing is not found. It's here in that statement in verses 23 and 24. Yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you will take me up in glory. It's in that statement that he reminds himself and believes that he was looking for blessings in the wrong places. He was looking for God's blessing in earthly things, but the blessing of God is not found in earthly things. The blessing of God is that though this world is hard, you, you need to hear this. Because God has promised you blessings, and I don't want you looking for blessings in the wrong places. Because there are some who will argue that the blessings of God are in health and wealth and prosperity. There is no blessing of God there. Now listen, I'm not saying God won't give you health. I'm not saying that God won't give you wealth. I'm not saying that he won't give you prosperity. But the faithfulness of his promise is not found in those things. Because there are faithful brothers and sisters who don't have health who don't have wealth, who don't have prosperity. So either God lied or that's not where the ultimate blessing is found. And see, what Asaph is beginning to remember is that the blessing of God is not primarily seen in the stuff you have. It's not seen in the amount of money you possess. The blessing of God is not realized with good health or good fortune. The blessing of God is that when we stand before him at the end of this life, we will not be separated from him because we are united to him with Christ. The blessing of God, brothers and sisters, is that though this world might be horrible at times, you get God. He is the blessing. He is the joy. That's why the psalmist can say in Psalm 84, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in tents with the wicked. You understand what he's saying? I'd rather not have a home of my own. I'll stand in God's doorway rather than have my own tent if it's with the wicked because it's better to be with God than to have all the things of this world. And some of us have got to change our perspective. God is not good to you because you are healthy. And God is not bad when you are sick. God is not good when your bank account is full and bad when you run out of money. Now we see his goodness in those things, but God's goodness is seen in the fact that he loved you enough to give give you himself. The blessing is not in material things. The blessing is not in earthly comfort. The blessing is that we can dwell with God in eternity because of what he has done for us. And this truth leads Asaph to the final key idea that I want you to see in Psalm 73. A renewed dependence. A renewed dependence. Look, look at verses 25 through 28. He says, who do I have in heaven but you? Now notice this next line and what a shift has taken place. And I desire Nothing on earth but you. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, here it is, as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge so I can tell about all that you do. There in verse 25, you see the proper perspective restored. Asaph says, who do I have in heaven but you? Again, notice where he's looking. He's not looking at the horizontal things around him. He's looking at the God who dwells in eternity. And he says, I have you. He says, I desire nothing on earth but you. You see, when our chief desires are the things of this world, we will never be satisfied with what God offers. Because God does not offer you all the things of this world. But God offers you himself. And I believe, even though I struggle with it at times, that there is no greater treasure than God himself. And so does Asaph. He says in verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph, please hear this. Asaph can proclaim with confidence, not because he is good, not because he deserves God. He can proclaim with confidence that God will be his strength and his portion forever. Because there's another time in Scripture where we read, but God. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedience. You too all previously lived among them in your fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of your flesh and thoughts. And you were by nature children under wrath, so the others were also. But God who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. See, though the Messiah had not yet come, Asaph is confident that God would keep his word. And that though his flesh and his heart may fail, though he is tainted by the sin of this world, that God would be his strength, that God would be his portion forever. And we look back at Jesus and say, God came through. Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, every one of us rebelling against God. It's easy to look down on the wicked and see their prosperity when you forget that you were once one of them. But God, in love and kindness and grace and mercy, he sent Jesus who lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He died in our place. As we prayed earlier, the full weight of judgment and wrath that we deserve was poured out on him. He was crucified and raised from the dead, and we can come to faith. We can can be united to God through Christ by placing our faith in what he has done and believing he is our only way, repenting of our sins. Agreeing with God that what he has is best. So Asaph is confident, not because he's so good, but because God is. And this morning, what I want you to know, brothers and sisters, is that if you are saved by grace, you already have the greatest good that God can offer. You are united to God through faith in Christ. I heard a pastor once say that sometimes we approach God and ask him for good things. He says, I have to imagine that God just pulls out his pockets and says, I got nothing left. I gave you the greatest gift. And if that's true, then we can say like Asaph in verse 28, but as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. I love that he ends it like this. I love that he ends it with that line, so I can tell about all you do. Because if you remember earlier, he was tempted to proclaim that God was not good, but he stopped himself. But after reminding himself of the truth about God's goodness, he says, I have made the Lord God my refuge, so I can tell about all you do. I know I went long, I'm almost done, but let me say this. Uh, a couple years ago, a couple years ago, some of you know this, uh, when we moved into our house here in, in Shawnee, uh, our basement started flooding. like flooded, flooded. I'm talking about the first time that sucker flooded, I got out, I shot back out at least 200 gallons of water. Uh, we have carpet, it's a finished basement. That's what makes it tough. So I'm out there, shot back in. I probably did that five, six times that. That spring. I was so fed up with it. You know, when you get to that point where you're so fed up, like you'll just spend the money. I was like, Aliyah, call them. Call them, whatever the price. So we had a guy come out, looked at it, assessed the problem. He's like, man, we can get it done. It's going to cost you about $10,000. I said, well, let's get a second opinion. Um, <laughs> let's, get, let's get a second opinion. So we called this other company, you know, check the Google reviews, all that stuff. Guy comes out. Aaliyah says it's because he was from the Midwest, because he's a Midwestern guy. She calls him uh, her Midwestern angel, which is weird. We'll deal with that another time. But uh, (laughs) this dude comes out. He actually he actually offers to do more work, better work, right? And he says, "Man, we can do it for about twenty eight hundred dollars." I said, "When can you start?" So, you know, I'm already kind of questioning, like, why did this one dude say, like, 10000 This dude says, like, 2800 He's going to do more work. Like, somebody shady. Hopefully, we picked the right one. Hey, they, they got our basement right. They got it right. I mean, last night, it came down. <laughs> I wasn't worried. I wasn't worried. It has rained. It has poured. I've been worried. As he was leaving, after we paid him, he said, could you do one, one thing for me? I said, yeah, what's up? He said, man, if you know of anybody else that needs basement work, could you just could you recommend the good work that we do? I said, you bet. You bet. 2800 dollars my basement's not soaking what you bet. I have told probably 10, 15 people about B drive basement systems, okay? I'm, I'm a fan of B drive. If you come to me with basement problems, I'm gonna tell you. B drive, they do good work. And they don't charge you that much. They'll even come out and they'll check it if you think something's wrong. Now you might be like, why in the world am I telling you this? Because when we genuinely believe something is good, we will not be quiet about it. We can't be quiet about it when something is truly good. And what we have to understand is that our our lives, our mouths will testify to something. Something that we see as good, something we believe to be best. And for those of us who have tasted and seen the goodness of God, how can we not but declare like Asaph so I can tell about all that you do? If you want evidence that you believe that God is good, evaluate your conversation. Because if we genuinely believe that God has been good to us, how can we not but proclaim his excellencies? This morning, church, what I want to tell you is that we will look at this world and there will be times and things that just don't make sense to us. Why God allows certain things, why he does certain things, but our hope is not that everything in this life will go well. Because I'll be the first to tell you, it won't. It won't. But our hope is that at the end of all of this, We get God. And there is no greater treasure. So please, don't sell out. Don't sell out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your kindness. And I pray, Lord, that we would have a heart like the psalmist when he declares that better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Let that be true of us, for your fame and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.